This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It is not a pleasant topic to think about and talk about, and um, a lot of people want to shy away from speaking about these these things, and uh, there's probably been a pretty steep decline over time in the amount of uh, teaching there is on this subject because it's not so pleasant and it's not that great and as our society uh, embraces more of you know especially postmodern and humanistic and universalist ideas and that has infiltrated its way into even the church but even denominational circles if we want to talk just speaking of Christianity broadly it's infiltrated into these groups so that everyone's going to heaven, or everyone's okay, or there's not that much punishment, and everyone wants to focus on God's love, and they think it's not loving for God to send people to this place called hell. Uh, however, that is, that, that is a consequence of love, because uh, evil must be punished, and, and so that said, well, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but there is a pretty steep decline because people don't want to talk about this. It's uncomfortable, and we can't run from the truth, and we can't hide from the truth, and I wouldn't dare uh, stand before you and, and paint you some picture that it's not as bad as it sounds. No, it's, it's as bad as it sounds and worse when we look at the subject of hell. Now, what is hell? I think that's the, the starting uh, question here. Um, and it uh, looks like I have reached the end of my presentation. That is, that's it. That's all I have to say. Um, all right. Um, so what is hell? That's... that's the first question. That's what we started with last time and said, what is heaven? And we looked at the fact that it's a place of God's glory and His presence is there. But what is hell? Uh, I actually learned uh, several things about hell in, in studying and preparing for this because uh, what I did not know is, is where that term comes from in the, the, the uh, not the English word, but the Greek word, because uh, hell is associated with a place in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And so it was, a, it was a place that was outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem, and the Bible also refers to that valley. There's a place there called uh, Tophet, and uh, Tophet was in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, and this was, a, this was a terrible place. It was awful because this is where un, unfaithful Israelites would gather and worship the false idols like Molech and other he goes by other names, this false god that they, that they worshipped over time. And this is where they gathered together to burn their children in fire, to offer them up to these gods. And, and it's horrible to think about and read about the things that these people did to these, to these children, babies, infants. They would heat the statue up. It said that the statue had... It was kind of a, um, a hollowed-out uh, statue, and it was made of brass, and they would light these coals and get it to an intense heat, and the brass would be, you know, extremely hot. And the, the way the statue was designed, it, you know, this, this fake idol had his... Uh, well, it was not a fake idol. It was, it was an idol, but it was a fake god. would have his hands out, and they would place the children in those, in those hands. And they would burn and writhe, and, and to drown out the sounds of the screaming children, they would all you know, scream and cheer and bang on drums and they would make a loud commotion and you know, maybe oftentimes had you know, uh, 
a lot of alcohol and all this kind of you know stuff to to just drown the sounds out so they couldn't hear this horrible torment that was taking place and in their minds they were convinced this was such a wonderful thing and a great thing that they're sacrificing these their children to these gods and they're pleasing this god named Molech and who has who's not even a real thing it's he doesn't even exist and it's just an idea in their mind and it was a horrible place the valley of Hinnom and God spoke of this place, and it's interesting to me, these people did this horrible thing to these children there and burned these children alive there, yet God was going to use that place as a place for punishment and torment for the people who were evil and wicked. And so it's, 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 it's poetic justice, I would say, in one, one way, where it's they burn and though those children suffered temporarily the, the people who participated in those things and committed those acts their suffering would not be temporary um, and God speaks of this place to fed and if you look at verses like Isaiah 30 we're going to look at a few Old Testament passages to get a, an understanding of the language that the New Testament uses when it's describing this place called hell so Isaiah chapter 30 verse 33 it says for Tophet and that's the place in the valley of Hinnom it says for Tophet is ordained of old. This was a place that God has, has chosen from of old, it says, that, that God had this in mind for, for a long time. Yea, for the king it is prepared. And it's interesting that the word Molech means king, and he, it's, it's like this was designed for this evil uh, idol and this evil, these evil people. And there's something else at play here. It's not just about those current events. I think this is a type. And he's talking about Satan and the fact that God's judgment against Satan has been ordained of old. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a, in, in a moment uh, when we get into the New Testament passages. But it's ordained of old, and for the king it is prepared, and it has been made deep and large. The pile thereof is a fire and, a, and much wood, and the breath of the Lord like a stream of brimstone doth kindle it. So what this is referring to in the context is judgment against the king of Assyria. Assyria was an enemy of God's people. And they tried to destroy God's people and tried to proclaim that their God was the true God. And they, they did all kinds of things to, to the Israelites. And God is proclaiming this place as a place of judgment. And it's going to be so bad, uh, he says. And, and the way he describes it is associated with God's judgment. It's associated with fire. It's, a, it's associated as a place for God's enemies. He says in Isaiah 66, verse 24, though it's not naming this place by name, I think it's connected and, and this is in mind and in view when later in the, in the book he's pronouncing judgment against the, the evil people and, and even the Israelites who are unfaithful. He says in Isaiah 66, 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And you may automatically, your mind may already be going to the words of Christ because that's the language he used and this is what he was referring to. He's referring to these passages. He's referring to this idea of the judgment against God's people and against the unfaithful. And he says, it's going to be a horrible place where the maggots are, will not die. They will just constantly be there because it's just going to be corruption and rottenness and destruction and their fire will not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. This is going to be a horrible, terrible outcome for the people who are unfaithful and the people who are against God and against his word. Now, Again, I mentioned not only the enemies of God, and that king of Assyria, I believe, is a type of, and it's speaking of Satan, but he's using the modern people and the times and the locations to tell this broader story. 
And he does also include the children of Israel, the people who were the people of God, who chose to be unfaithful. And he talks about this place, Tophet, in the Valley of Hinnom, as a place of their judgment as well. And they would, be, they would participate in that and be included in this horrible uh, outcome for them. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31, he says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. This is not something God ever asked them to do. This is not something God ever required of them. This, he, in fact, he told them, when they, he says, When you go into the land, do not worship me the way these gods are, are worshipped in these lands. Don't adopt their practices and and." believe that you're worshiping me by doing those things. And that's exactly what happened. They started to try to worship the true and living God with the practices that they saw these other idol worshipers doing and incorporate that into their worship of God. And that included the burning of their sons and daughters in the fire. And God said, you will not, you shall not do this. It is an abomination to him. And so he makes it very clear. This is not something I ever asked and I don't want. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall be no more called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but God's going to call it by a new name, the valley of slaughter, because that's where the evil will be slaughtered. That's where the evil people will go. That's where the evil children of Israel will go and be slaughtered. And they're going to bury so many people in Tophet, there will be no place. There's not going to be any more room. That's how many people will die and, and are going to be punished by this punishment. He says, the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Uh, then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. So when God describes this, this place, Tophet, the, the Valley of Hinnom, which he would call the Valley of Slaughter, he says it's going to be horrible and terrible, and it's a judgment against the people of Israel and against the enemies of God, and there will be no happiness, no gladness, no mirth, no joy there. And so this place became a symbol of God's right, uh, righteous judgment against evil. He also says later in the book in Jeremiah, he says it this way, And thou shalt say to them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break this people and, and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel and cannot be made whole again. And they will bury into Fed, and there will be no place to bury. Thus will I do to this place, saith the Lord God, and to the inhabitants thereof, and make the city as Tophet. And he, jumping to verse 15, he says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil or the, the trouble or the, the, the uh, bad things, the curses that he's proclaimed upon them. Not that God is committing evil, but he says, All the things that I've said that would happen, all those terrible things, I'm going to do, do what I pronounced against it because they hardened their necks that they might not hear my words. They refused to listen to the word of God. They refused to hear his call for them to repent, his call for them to stop worshiping these idols and to tear down these groves and to, to, to destroy these places. And instead, they embraced them even more. And they turned away from him. And God says this will be a place of judgment. And so these Old Testament passages are really important to understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about hell in the New Testament. And so, remember, this Valley of Hinnom is a place that's associated with fire. It's associated with the wicked and the unfaithful. It's associated with complete and utter destruction, de desolation, he says. It's, it will just be this, this wasteland. And it's associated with God's judgment. And he uses this location as a place where he sends those who are, are wicked and unfaithful um, and the evil. And he, and he will destroy it there. 
Now, that word, uh, that word is, and this place is what Jesus has in mind when he's speaking about hell. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 47, he says, If your eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. When he's saying cast into hellfire, he's, he's saying and referencing this place, the Valley of Hinnom, this, uh, this, this evil place. And he says, and that's a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Remember, that's the exact phrasing that, he, that we read in Isaiah, uh, in the book of Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 33, I believe it was. Um, he says those exact words, and he's using it to call to mind to the Jews who would have been very familiar with that place, who knew it very well that the Valley of Hinnom was a place of destruction of God and God's judgment. And he says, if you don't enter the kingdom, the alternative is you'll be cast into the hellfire where there's going to be constant corruption and the fire is not quenched and it's going to be a continual burning and a continual corruption that, that is just taking place, you know, and it's just long-lasting. Now that word, so the, so the Hebrew idea and, and definition of that place, this horrible, terrible place that's just so, so scary and horrible and terrible, they, know it, they knew it very intimately. The Valley of Hinnom, or in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's actually the... There's another passage that says it's the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which is uh, something like Geb, Geben Hinnom, but it's Gehenom, and that was translated or transliterated in, into Greek as Gehenna. And so that's where that word comes from. The Gehenna comes from Gehenom, which is that, that Hebrew word. Uh, and so then in English, the English... Uh, writers, for some reason, chose to uh, translate Gehenna and Hades into a single English word, hell. And so that has caused a lot of confusion when you're reading the Bible, when you're reading the Old Testament. It's very important to understand and know and see, is Jesus talking about Hades or is he talking about Gehenna? And in this passage and the passages that we'll study today, he's talking about Gehenna. He's talking about this Valley of Hinnom. That's what he has in mind um, when he's talking about this place. Now, Hell is a horrible and terrible place of God's judgment. And remember we read in Isaiah that it was prepared against the king of Assyria. It was prepared from of old, he said, for this, for this wicked king, this power against God's people. I think Jesus is referring to this exactly and giving us the, the truth and revealing the light, showing, showing the meaning of those things that we read about in, uh, in Matthew 25. Um, in Matthew 25, verse 41, when he's speaking about this unquenchable fire, this place where the worm dieth not, this place called hell, Gehenna, he says, They shall say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Um, now, though that word Gehenna is not used here, he's speaking about an eternal, perpetual fire, an eternal fire. And what was that prepared for? For the devil and his angels. This place has been ordained of old. God has had this in mind and has designed this place and designed this destruction for, for the devil and his angels, for their disobedience against him. They would not hear his word. They would not follow his ways. The devil was lifted up with pride in himself and tried to be God and then brought corruption and sin and death into this world and, and corrupted us with that. And because he has led himself and others away through his pride and his arrogance and his refusal to submit to the word of God and his ways, um, God has designed this place of everlasting fire for him. And so hell is a place that has been prepared for this king, this power against God's people from of old. And it's going to be terrible. 
and the breath of the Lord, as, as, as it says there, as we read, like brimstone will, will, will set that alight. And, and this is uh, important to understand because God did not design this place for His children. He did not design that for us. Its original intention is for the devil and his angels. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't send us there because he's going to. He's going to send us into this, to this place, this valley of Hinnom, so to speak, this horrible and terrible destination that will be a perpetual fire and a place of destruction. Now, I want to address something right away as we're talking about this because there is a prevalent idea among uh, anti-theists, atheists. There's, a, there's a, a prevalent idea even in Christian churches, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes, um, because they call themselves Christians and they say they're teaching Christian doctrines, and they have this view that God is, is well, there's, there's two views, right? Uh, one is that God is this sadistic tyrant who's just so excited to send people into suffering. He just wants people to burn because they're disobedient, and he's just so excited by that. And then, of course, there's the other view where it's like, no, God's not going to send anybody. He's so loving. He's so kind. How could a loving God do that? That's, not, that's wrong. Um, and the, to the first point, as far as is God excited to send people to Gehenna, absolutely not. This is not something that God wants or wishes for anyone. In fact, he says himself, read his own statement in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. He says, say, say unto them as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not happy about the death of the wicked. What is he happy about? But that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's what God is excited about. If people repent and they live, that's what, that's what makes him happy because that is in line with his with his character. That's what he wants. Uh, he says, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ultimately, the, the, the choice of going here, it's not really God that's choosing to send you there. It's you and me that are choosing to go there. He wants us to turn. He gives us the ability to turn from our evil ways and follow him instead. And, and, and if we don't, he's going to let us have the outcome of our own choices. And he will send us to this place. And that is not inconsistent with love. Because love requires and demands uh, punishment and a payment and, a, and, and calling to uh, enforcing of a, an expectation for something greater and something better. And God needs to correct us in that way. But ultimately, punish must, sin must be punished, and that will be carried out. Second Peter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. God's not going to forget about the judgment that He's proclaimed, the fire that He's proclaimed on this world, and when He comes, it'll all melt away with fervent heat. He's not going to forget that. But why is it taking so long? Because that's what some people think. Well, it's taking so long, so it must not gonna, there's nothing going to happen. That's not going to take place. Everything is going to continue as it was. And they're scoffers. But... It's not that it's not going to happen. It's that God is patient. God is long-suffering to us, not willing. He is not desiring that any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. He's giving people a chance. He's giving people an opportunity to repent because he doesn't want people to perish at all. Now, if we choose to perish, he will let us. If, if we choose to go to this place of eternal torment, then that's, that's on us, not on God. He's not excited to send people there, and he's not some sadistic, tyrannical God just sitting there hoping and waiting for this day where he can just throw all these unfaithful people in there and watch them writhe in pain. It's not true. That is not a true depiction of God in the least. 
He's not excited about that. He wants us to repent, and that's the very reason that Jesus came into this world. He came to warn us about this place called hell. He, he came to warn us about this valley of Gehenna that, that, that he doesn't, because he doesn't want us to go there. In, in Luke chapter 9, the disciples are going and they're traveling to these villages and this one village rejects God and they don't want to hear Jesus. They don't want his disciples to come there. And so John and James get the bright idea to say, why don't we just call fire and brimstone on them like Elijah did? Can we, we should do that, right? Let's just wipe them out. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you're, this is not the Spirit of God. And he says in, in Luke 9:56, he says, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus said, I'm not coming here to destroy and wipe out all these people. I'm coming here to help people. I'm, I, he's coming to pull as many people out of the fire as he can. That's what he's, he's come to do. He's come to rescue, not to, not to destroy and cast us out as, as you know, refuse to be burned and, and destroyed. He's come to save us. That's what he came to do. But part of that process of saving us is telling us the truth, and the truth is that we must repent. So he comes and he tells his, his, starts with his people, the Jews, and he, and he tells them, you must hear my words and you must change and you must repent. And he laments the fact that they're not going to listen to him and they don't want him and they reject him. And there's passages over and over and over that talk about this. But notice what he says, something interesting in Luke 10. He says, uh, he says but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable in that day, the day of judgment, the day when Christ comes and this fire takes place, it'll be more tolerable for the day of Sodom than for the city that rejected Christ. Can you think about that? Sodom was a horrible, wicked place, and God destroyed it with brimstone because of their, their wickedness, their, their homosexuality and the sodomy that was taking place there, men with men, working that which is unseemly. He says it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than for the people that reject the word of Christ. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were also enemies of God's people and kingdoms that were against God's people, he says if, if they had seen the miracles that, that are being done in your cities, they would have... They would have a great while ago, they would have repented a long time ago from their sins. They would have been sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They would have been sorry for the things they were doing and realized that their ways were wrong. But you won't. That's what he's saying to these cities that they're going and, tra and traveling to and doing these miracles in. And they refuse to hear. They refuse to, to soften their hearts. They refuse to, to not make their necks so stiff against God and, and be in pride. And he says it's going to be better and it's going to be tolerable, rather, for the day of Sodom and for Tyre and Sidon than the people who reject the judge, and, and the judgment, than for anyone who rejects Jesus and does not want to repent. And so part of him saving us is him telling us the truth and we must change and we must repent. And that message is true for us. If we don't want to hear, then that's on us. It's not on, on Christ. And he was very clear about the gravity of hell. And again, some people argue, oh, it's not a place of torment and God's not going to do that. He's a loving God, and there's nothing in the Bible that says that. And that is false, absolutely false, and you can just take it for face value. Matthew 25, verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment. It's everlasting. When we talk about God, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about life, he uses the term everlasting because it's eternal. It's ongoing. It's not going to end. And Jesus uses that same word in the language when he's talking about the punishment that will be carried out in this place, Gehenna. He says, those shall go into everlasting punishment. 
It's not going to stop. It's not going to end. And this place in Revelations is pictured as a lake of fire. Now, this is a vision that, that John was talking about, um, so take that with a grain of salt, but, but I think there's a picture here about the, the suffering. He says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus wanted us to know and understand that we must repent or else it's going to be an everlasting punishment in a lake of fire. And he also described it as outer darkness. In Matthew 8, he says, But the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was very clear about the suffering that we are going to experience if we are part of this group that's not found in the book of life, that's, that maybe we were the children of the kingdom, but we would not repent and follow him, and we're cast into outer darkness. And it's a lake of fire, eternal hellfire, is, as Jesus described it. This is not a pleasant place, and Jesus is very clear because he wants us to not go there. And he came to let us know how to avoid going there. And how we go there is a choice. And if we go there is a choice, whether we're, gonna, whether we're going to make the sacrifices that are necessary now or end up sacrificing our own life and soul. Mark 8, 35 says, Whosoever will save his life will lose it. If we work so hard to preserve what we have and are unwilling to repent, unwilling to let go of our will, then we are going to lose our life, and it's going to end up in a place of eternal torment. But whosoever will lose his life for, for the sake of Christ and the Gospels, then you're going to find it. You're going to have eternal life. And, and it feels counterintuitive to our very uh, human-conditioned th- way of thinking where we need to keep what we have and preserve what we have in order to, to live but that's just not, that's just, that ain't it. That just ain't it. That's not how it works. Jesus comes to give us the truth. What shall a man profit if you gain the whole world and, and lose your own soul? Nothing. You will gain nothing. And there's nothing you can give in exchange for it. Rhetorical questions, of course. And, who, and, and again, remember, the people that go to the Valley of Hinnom are the people that rejected the word. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. So if we are ashamed of his word, and it's like the rich young ruler, what did he hear? You need to sell what you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he was like, he was sad. He was ashamed at the words. It didn't fill him with, you know what? I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to respond to your word, and I'm going to do what you've asked. No, instead he was like, well, that's, that's too hard. And if we don't make the sacrifice now, we're giving up our own life. We're sacrificing our own life to the fire. We're going to lose everything. And Jesus made it very clear and very apparent on how we can avoid going to hell. Cling to your life. Cling to your will. Or let it go and embrace God's will instead. And if we reject God's will then what we're doing is aligning ourselves with Satan and, and making ourselves his children, not God's children. That's what he told the Israelites, who were supposedly God's children. They thought that. And yet they were so blind by their hate towards Christ. He says in John 8, uh, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. If God was truly the one you're serving, then you would love, who, you would love me, you would love what I'm saying, you're going to respond, you're going to hear my words and do those words. But he said, no, you're not of God. You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. And he describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning and a liar. There's no truth in him. And if we're his children, that means there's no truth in us. 
We're not truly aligned with God and we're not truly following him. And he says, he that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not because you are not of God. So if we refuse to give up our will, then we are making ourselves allies with Satan and we are making ourselves his children. And for the children of sin and the children of Satan and the children of disobedience is not going to be a good end at all. And Jesus wants to warn us about that. He came to teach us to live holy lives. Remember, he wants us to live on earth as it is in heaven, and that means in alignment with God's will, in obedience to his words, because that's what happens in heaven. And he wants that to be the case for us while we're here on earth. And in Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How will we know if we're going to heaven? How will we know if we're going to enter into the kingdom? Are you doing the will of the Father? That's the question we can ask ourselves. We can look in the mirror and say, am I doing God's will or am I doing my own? And we can fool ourselves and trick ourselves into thinking, well, I love Jesus. I have positive, warm, fuzzy feelings about him. And we know when I do things, that makes me feel happy. But he says, not everyone that just says to me, Lord, we can call him Lord all day long. There's a difference between calling him Lord and living as if he is your Lord. And, and he says, many are going to say, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done cast out devils and in, in your name done many wonderful things? We did a lot of good things. We were living for you. And in your name, we did all these things. And he'll profess, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. That, that to me, I think is the most frightening thought to believe that I'm doing the right thing, to be convinced that I'm following the truth, and then at the day of judgment come to Christ and say, you're my Lord, and he says, I don't even know who you are. And, and then be called a worker of iniquity. <clears throat> Jesus came to teach us to live holy lives, true holy lives in alignment with his will. And that means we have to take sin seriously and not live in this blindness and this, this falsehood that think we're following Christ, but we're really not. We need to know. And that is by taking sin seriously. That's one thing. He says in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, I don't think Jesus is telling you literally to harm your, yourself but he's trying to get the point across of how serious we should take this. If your eye is offending you, get, it, get rid of it. It's better for you that, if it, that one of your body parts would perish and not that your whole body would be cast into hell, into Gehenna. And if your right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it. It's profitable that your, one of your members should perish, not your whole body should be cast into, cell, to, into hell. He wants us to take sin seriously and cut it out of our lives. Get to the root cause and cut it out of your life because it's better for you to suffer a little bit and lose something that you think is so precious, that you think is so valuable, that you think is so necessary in your life. It's better for you to lose that now than to lose your whole body and soul in hell. That's what he's saying. We need to take sin seriously and follow his word seriously and not just look to satisfy our own flesh and satisfy our own will and to give ourselves these warm, fuzzy feelings that we're following Jesus and we're, oh, we're... Let's dispense with all of that. Now, it does 
Following the Word of God does produce feelings and the right type of feelings, and we can feel good with the knowledge that we're following His will. But if, if we need to be really, really honest with ourselves and aware of ourselves and say, am I worshiping feelings or am I worshiping the true and living God? Because if we're worshiping feelings, we'll end up sacrificing our children to the fires and, and to Molech and think that we're doing God some great service. But if we're following his word, we will know and be able to see very clearly. He's the lamp to our feet. He's the light of our path. He shows us the way, and he wants us to live according to those precepts faithfully. In Matthew 24, he talked about this servant, uh, this king, this great ruler who put his servants in charge of his stuff, and he said, I'm going to leave for a far journey, and I'm going to return. He didn't tell them when. And he says, you should be ready. Be ready, because such an hour that you think not the Son of Man cometh, but it, and he talks about that servant who wasn't watchful. And you know what he started to do? He says, if that evil servant say in his heart, you know, my Lord's not coming back yet. I've got plenty of time. Plenty of time to, to honor him and to represent him well and to take care of his things well and to treat his people well. I've got plenty of time. And he begins to smite his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken. And he's just living carefree, doing whatever he wants. Being, being a, a terrible person to his fellow servants, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him because he's not watchful, he's not prepared, he's not doing what's right, and in that hour he is not aware of, and that Lord will cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He wants us to be watchful. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to live faithfully, not living so blinded by the comforts and the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of our flesh that we're just like, you know, it's fine. I've got plenty of time. I can get around to it, you know. No, we need to, we need to take it seriously. And that's convicting for me because I get lulled into the comforts of this world. We live in a very, very opulent time, one of the richest, most wealthiest, safest times in history, and it's easy for us to forget God. And I'm susceptible to it as well. And so this is, this is scary for me as well. But he wants us to live faithfully and watchful. And if we don't, and if we just give up, and we give in to sin, so we could live in, in the spiritual blindness and think we're doing all these great things, or we can just totally give up. And if we totally give up, there's nothing good that we have to look forward to. Hebrews 10, 26. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. What does remain? What do we have to hold on to in this life? A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. That's all we'll have in this life. If we just give up, you know, I'm not going to follow Christ anymore. Forget about all that. In fact, there's other passages that say, it would have been better for you not to have known the, the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned away from it. It's not a great idea to start and to not finish the course and to turn your hand from the plow and to get lulled into, into the unrighteousness of this world. And then, not repent when we're called to repent and to change our lives. In Romans chapter 2, he says, after the hardness and impenitent heart that you have, you were treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice how it's described. It's a day of wrath. It's not a good day. It's not a good thing. And yet we harden our hearts and go, no, you know what? I can, I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to change, and I'm not going to follow God's will. I'm not going to listen. But unto those that are contentious and don't obey the truth of God, they don't want to submit themselves, they don't want His words, they reject it, they instead obey unrighteousness. All that awaits is indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man that, that chooses to do evil. 
and that's for everyone. And at that day, we'll have to give account to Jesus when he returns and we stand before his, his judgment seat. We're going to have to tell him why. why. Why didn't we do what he asked? Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Think about that. You will have to give an account. I will have to give an account. I'm going to have to tell him why I let myself get so busy and distracted. And I'm not tending to the things that I need to. I'm going to have to tell him why work was so much more important than my family. I'm going to have to tell him why I didn't just make the time to, to sit and visit with brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them. I'm going to have to tell him that. And there's not going to be a good answer. And at the end of the day, it's because of a choice that I made, because of the value that I placed on those things that distracted me above the value of the Word of God and above following Him. And that's going to be on me. And we need to know about this. And Jesus came to warn us about this because He doesn't want us to end up there. And, and He is coming to execute judgment, and He's very clear about that. He's very plain about that. He doesn't want us to be unwise servants who aren't watching. He wants us to be watchful and know that He's coming because He is. In First uh, Thessalonians, it says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel with the trump of God. It's going to happen suddenly. And it's, and it's especially going to be shocking and surprising if we're the kind of Christians that are not even paying attention and just kind of just so unaware. Living our life, doing, you know, well, we're happy. It's fine. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. No burglar gives you an advance warning. He doesn't send you a text message, hey, I'm going to break into your house tonight. He doesn't do that. It comes all of a sudden when you least expect it. And even if you can be as prepared as you want for that, it'll still happen unexpectedly. And he says that's what's going to happen on the day of the Lord when he returns from heaven to execute this judgment. And he, what's going to happen at that day the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. All of these works, all of these things, God is going to cast into this lake of fire, and it will all be burned up and all be, be purified. And He'll take out what is pure and what remains, and, and what will be cast in and burn and melt away and, be, and in that eternal fire. He also describes in Revelation 20 that death and, and Hades will also be cast into that place, and it'll be put away, and that's the victory that Christ wins over uh, death. And at that time when he returns and all these things are taking place, everyone will be raised up from Hades. John 5, 28, don't marvel, the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice. All shall come forth and that have done good to the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Those will be the two outcomes when the resurrection takes place and Jesus comes to execute this judgment. And again, as I mentioned with heaven, no one goes to heaven until this takes place. No one goes to Gehenna until this takes place either. That's important to know and to understand uh, so that there's clarity and not confusion in, in what to expect. And Jesus described using the parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13, he says, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. 
and they'll be all gathered up and cast into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and it will be a very unpleasant end for all the unfaithful, all those who chose to live unfaithfully to Christ, and all those, all those that chose to live unprepared and unwatchful for the kingdom and for Christ and for his coming. And that's the picture that we're going to get. And I think probably it's hard for us to really imagine right now. But I think probably the worst, absolute worst suffering and the worst pain and the worst thing about hell is that we will be eternally, if we're in this group, the resurrection of damnation, we will be eternally cut off and exiled from God. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. You who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we point out this verse and we use that verse and we show people that verse and say, see, they don't, they don't obey the gospel. They weren't baptized in Christ. That, that may be true, but obedience to the gospel means you're going to live faithfully for him too. So it's not just about the initial act of being in Christ, but it's also about living in Christ. So we'll be, all of those will be taken vengeance upon. And what is that vengeance going to look like and be like? It's flaming fire, but he says, we will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Remember, heaven is a place where God's glory is and God's presence is, and we want to be there, and he wants us to be there. But if we choose not to do, be there, if we choose to live this life however we want and not give up our will and to keep on doing the same old things and trick ourselves into being happy, trick ourselves into believing we're religious, trick ourselves into, into believing we're so spiritual and we're connected with God when we're really not and He doesn't know us, this is all that awaits. It's a place that is devoid of God's presence and His glory. And this means His love is not there. His mercy is not there. His kindness is not there. His righteousness is not there. His light is not there. And you think you have times where you feel alone, you feel abandoned by God, you feel, you feel and there's people in this world who say, oh, I don't want to live with God, there's no such thing. And I, We have no idea what it means to live without God. Because in this place, when we get cast into this place, if we're in that group, we will be totally cut off from Him forever, and there's no hope of being reconciled. None. It's gone. The time is expired. There's not going to be another chance. And we're going to feel the full weight of our sin and our guilt and everything we've ever done wrong and the reasons and sit here and toil in the fact that we had a chance and we chose not to do anything with it. We had a chance to do the right thing. And instead, we chose the pleasures of this life because we thought that was better. And we'll have that mental anguish of knowing we could have been saved. We could have been with God's people, but we chose not to be. And people, again, they think they live without God, but no, they don't. He still, if we live in this world, he still blesses us with rain and with food and with good things. The light still shines upon us, but, but in that place, it won't. We have no idea what it means to live completely without God. And we won't really know that until this time, if we're in that place. And we don't want to be in that place. 
And this is the very reason that God sends Christ into the world to warn. And this is the very reason that he has sent you into this world to warn others. That's why he commands us to carry the Great Commission and to let other people know these truths. Let other people know what awaits and invite them into the love of Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. It's, it's, a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I, I want to and I want other people to be in the hands of the living God because we're covered in the blood of Christ. <coughs> and that's why, exactly why Jesus came to give his life, to save us from that outcome, to save us from being cut off from him totally. He wants to reconcile us and wants us to be one with him. He doesn't want us to experience that, and we shouldn't want to experience that. And that term hell gets thrown around so casually and we tell people go there or we say what the and we say all these things and we treat it as such a casual thing and we shouldn't. It's, it's terrible. And it shouldn't be some cuss word that we use or something we wish upon others. We have no idea what we're talking about if we use it in that way and we think we're living in that. But Jesus came to save us from that fate. And he says, we can be saved if we're covered in his blood, the blood of the, 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 the high priest offered to God, Romans 5, verse 9 through 10. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. How do we avoid the, the hellfire? We need to be saved from the wrath through him. And we need to be in his blood and covered in his blood. For if when we were enemies, we, we, we then became reconciled to God by the death of his son. And being much more reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. If we are outside of Christ, we are his enemies, and all that awaits us is that fate of Tephet that has been ordained of old and been prepared, and we will be cast there in the valley of Gehenna. But he says, if we're in Christ and we're part of his people, we will be saved from that outcome in wrath. And we, if we're living in sin and we're dead in sin, God will make us alive and does make us alive through Christ. Ephesians 2, quickly, he says, wherein in time past... You, choo you chose to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. And that's the grace by which we have been saved. If we have been covered by His blood, if we've been baptized into Christ, and we are in Him, then we can avoid this wrath. And not just be in Him and do that initial thing and feel good and go, well, I did this thing in your name. No, live according to His will and reject, reject this, this, the flesh and bring it into subjection to Christ. And if we're in Him and we're walking in the Spirit, Romans 8 gives us a promise, there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ and who are not walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. If you're the least bit scared, and I am, that should be a signal of something. Because if we're in Christ and we're doing what we need to be doing, we can have safety and peace. There's no condemnation that we have to look forward to. But instead, we'll look for salvation and look for peace and safety and all the things that we studied about in the first study. And again, lastly, we're not going to enter in there unless we are in Christ. John 3, verse 3. Most assuredly, I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is impossible. And so don't 
lull yourself into some belief that because you feel good about God, He feels good about you. Know with confidence that you did what He asked and be baptized in the Christ, be born again and live faithfully and encourage each other to live faithfully. As Paul said, so much, so much the more as we see the day of Christ approaching, we should be provoking to love and to good works and not hardening our hearts. Encourage each other and love each other and support each other because we don't want to end up in that valley of Gehenna. We don't want to end up in that place of torment and of destruction. We want to end up in the presence of God and His peace and His safety. And so if you're here this morning and you need the prayers of the church and you are filled with some terror about ending up here, we want to pray about that and pray with you and encourage you and do whatever we can to help. And maybe you're not in Christ at all yet. Maybe you haven't been baptized into Christ and you don't want to be going to this place and you know and you are have an awareness of your choices and your sins and you understand your guilt before God, He wants to wipe that away and wipe it clean and save you and pull you close to Him and keep you safe from this, this torment. If you're here this morning and you need help from the church, please come forward as we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.